spanning the nerd world and feeding your fandom. Crash landed. From comics to video games. From the cinematic universe to television. Stars in the industry. Something out there had discovered us. It's time for the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Here's your host, James Witham. As long as we have love, love can keep us together. It's episode 303 of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. I'm James Witham. Will love be enough to keep Beth alive? In Batwoman, we have no idea until this Sunday's episode when we start to find out exactly what's going to be going on with that story. And we're going to get the inside track this week from Cameron Johnson, who plays Luke Fox on the show. We're going to be talking about this week's episode where we start to find out, you know, what's going on with Beth and Alice and how only one of them will be able to survive. We'll talk about that. We'll talk about this, the, what's been going on in the first season of Batwoman in general. It's an amazing conversation with Cameron Johnson. You are not going to want to miss it. It's a double review week, too. As a matter of fact, can give you my spoiler-filled review of the Birds of Prey movie, whatever title they're using nowadays. Also going to be talking about Netflix's Lock and key, but first, I gotta tell you, man, do we have a couple of good comics this week. Let's get to it. It's what we're reading next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hi, this is Peter J. Tomasi, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hard copies or digital copies, laptops, bags and boards, whatever you're reading on, it is time for what we're reading and a lot of big books this week. But how about we start with Batman Pennyworth R.I.P. Number one, a lot of creators involved in this one. James Tyner the fourth and Peter J. Tomasi doing the writing. Art by Ed Barrows and Eber Feria. We've also got Chris Burnham, Marcio Takara, Diogenes Nieves, and David Lafuente on the art, along with Summit Kumar. Colors by and Ardino Lucas, Rex Locus, and Nathan Fairbairn. Also letters by Travis Lanham. And Tom Napolitano and just so many amazing creators in this book. And for good reason, because, I mean, in case you didn't tell by the title and in case you haven't been reading a lot of Batman lately, spoiler alert. Yeah, Alfred Pennyworth is no more. He's gone. I mean, you, you, you probably know that by now, but we haven't really jumped into, you know, the whole funeral and everything and how everybody's dealing with it. We kind of have seen how Bruce has been dealing with it in in the on the in the ongoing Batman series but now the entire Bat family is kind of coming together to pay their respects to Alfred and that's what this first issue is is we have the entire Bat family I mean pretty much the entire Bat family just in one room paying their respects to Alfred now how you think that might be going depends on your perspective and and what is what really is dealt with here is how important Alfred really was to this extended family, not just to Bruce, but to the extended family as well. And, you know, and then you're also saying, okay, well, without Alfred, how is this going to go? How is this dynamic going to be? And that is part of what's going on in this issue as well. But I will say this, when you look, when you think about Bat family characters, and you see, you know, who might be dealing with certain, like, obviously Damien has so, certain feelings that he has based on what happened to Alfred, and you can understand that. Again, I don't really want to spoil that just in case you haven't read everything that's happened. 
but but Damien specifically is dealing with something. And you have other other Bat family members that are as well. But what I did not expect was wisdom to come from a particular character in the room that you might not even think would be in the room. And maybe that's that's as much of a tease as I can give you, again, without spoiling anything. But it's funny that the wisdom that to, to kind of push things forward might have actually come from this particular character. And, and it was almost, it was, it was very unexpected, but at the same time, it was appropriate. And that'll make more sense when you, once you find who it is and what was said. Because normally you would expect it to come from this person, but in this particular instance, you wouldn't. And I know that that's really, you know, you, that's really kind of, you know, me beating around the bush. But again, I'm trying not to spoil this thing here, but Bruce Wayne's mental state is something that is very interesting, not only going into this issue, but coming out of this first issue as well, because Bruce doesn't deal with death in his family well anyway. We've seen that in the past. But this is Alfred. This is like losing his parents all over again, except for all these years later, right? So you could almost you could argue that he's built more of a relationship with Alfred than he ever did with his parents. And that is crazy to say out loud, but once you do say it out loud, it's it's kind of true, isn't it? So there's worry, there's anger, there's a lot of stuff that goes into this issue, but there's a lot of powerful stuff and a lot of amazing stories inside of these pages as well. And with all the amazing artists in this issue, you can only imagine just how great the art is throughout. And I love that we get different artists for the different stories that family members have to tell. And that's why you have such a large creative team on this. Normally you think, well, you know, why do we need that many? Well, you need that many because of the, you know, in the flashbacks, everything looks different. So it's a great way to kind of differentiate all the different stories that are being told. But I mean, this is one of those things where I was really looking forward to reading this issue, even though, you know, I knew there would be a little bit of sadness, but this delivered exactly what I expected it to. You do not want to miss Batman Pennyworth RIP. Make sure you're getting this first issue and everything that comes after, because this is going to be, I think, a very, very important series going forward. Here's another one that I was looking forward to when it was first announced and did not disappoint either, and that is Nebula number one. From Marvel Comics, Vita Ayala on the writing, Claire Rowe on the art, Mike Spicer on the colors, VCs Travis Lanham on the letters, and Jen Bartell on the covers. That went by a lot faster because I was able to pronounce all those names. So yay for me! Now, when I first wanted, when I was first jumping into this issue and jumping into the series, I was wondering, okay, what kind of a nebula? are we going to get here? Because, you know, they kind of hero her up in the, in the movies a little bit. I mean, and I, and she still has some shady stuff going on, you know, even leading into even during end game and stuff like that. It's not totally, she's not totally in the hero category, but, but, you know, it looks like they're kind of starting to hero her up because she's such a popular character. I'm going to give you a spoiler alert right now because I'm, I'm not, I, I can't not spoil this and be able to talk about the rest of the issue. This nebula is bad, like bad to the bone. Yeah, she's still evil, and some of the stuff that she does in this issue, yeah, you're going to be like, whoa, okay, yeah, it's pretty clear where nebula stands as far as whether she's evil or not evil. And that, that There's no question what her intentions are. Let me just tell you that. Now, here's something very interesting. She's going to get something very specific 
that she found out about. And it could be an upgrade or it might not be an upgrade. It really depends on your perspective. And we sort of see that play out throughout the issue as well because what she's tracking down is pretty dangerous for one thing. And for two, I mean, it, it is a potential game changer, don't get me wrong, but but whether or not it works the way she wants it to work, and that and that's the key when you're when you're trying to upgrade anything, right? Is that is it, is it going to work better than what you already had, and is it going to work the way you intended it? You don't really know, kind of, until you actually get it in there and see how it works for you. But this is like times a million when it comes to that. So, but there's a lot of action in this book. There's a lot of you know. There's a lot of no moments of nebula being nebula. I love the dialogue that Vida Ayala has has brought through here for Nebula. I think it's. You know, there, there's, there is some like wisecracking there, but at the same time, it really fits the character really well. And but there's also, there's also this just this stone cold mentality that Nebula has in this issue, and almost, almost a take no prisoners aspect as well. But yet, you can almost still, you can almost still sense a hint of not completely evil there as well. So I don't know if we're walking a fine line. But certainly the door is propped open. Like it's not locked and shut and, and dead bolted and you know you're not going to be able to get through. There, there's a, You can see a little bit of daylight in there. And the way this book ends, who knows if that door might be open a little bit more or a little bit less. That's what we're going to find out in this upcoming second issue. The art, very, very cool as well. It almost gave, almost gave like a throwback sci-fi space type vibe to it. So I thought it was really, really neat. And not to mention Jen Bartel, one of the best cover artists, if not best artists in the business, period. So anytime you get Jen Bartel in your book and get a pop of a cover like that, you're going to take it. But the interior art does not disappoint as well. Make sure you're adding Nebula to your pull box. Nebula number one from Marvel. And of course, Batman Pennyworth RIP number one from DC as well. That'll do it for what we're reading. Up next, going to stick with DC and go full spoilers with my review of whatever they want to call the Birds of Prey movie now. It's next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is Tara Strong and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Some breakups are nasty and some breakups are deadly and some are just plain fun. And it's time to talk about Harley Quinn and the Birds of Prey or Birds of Prey and the Fantabulous Emancipation of Harley Quinn. Whatever they're going to be calling it in the theaters now because they kind of changed the name a little bit. I should warn you, spoilers from here on out for this movie if you haven't seen it yet. And you really should, by the way. I'm just going to start off and tell you that right now. Right here in the beginning. You need to see this movie. Don't worry about what the numbers are saying. The reports that you're reading about the positive feedback are completely justified because you know what? And I'm not going to go through, you know, shot for shot, plot for plot for this movie. You know what? It, maybe well, That might be part of the problem. Maybe you didn't know what it was about. So I will run that down for you here really, really quickly. Not going to really beat around the bush about it. Basically, you know, Harley breaks up with Joker. Nobody takes Harley seriously. Harley decides to blow up Ace Chemicals which was pretty cool, by the way, to kind of say to the world, I'm done with the Joker. I'm my own woman now. I'm not connected to him anymore. Problem is, is that apparently a lot of people hate Harley and want her dead. And now that she doesn't have Joker's protection, they feel like they can go ahead and do that. And and you sort of see them all coming out of the woodwork. And I love that, you know, you kind of break the fourth wall a little bit and pop up 
the little text boxes saying what their beef with her was and why they wanted her killed. I thought that that was really entertaining. Some of the reasons were really, really funny. I liked that. But then you've got Roman Sionis. That is right. The Black Mask himself, played by Ewan McGregor. And he has like a a laundry list of reasons to want Harley Quinn dead. And, I mean, you, you see a couple of, you know, smaller reasons mixed in here and there. And then you've got the major reasons that he wants her dead. And basically because it seems like he kind of wants everybody dead. He wants to just, he wants to rule things himself. He doesn't want, he wants to be taken more seriously. That's that's one thing for sure. And he wants to be the big shot. And yet he still has this veil of anonymity because he's seen as somebody that's, you know, very beneficial in the community by the GCPD. And maybe that's because he's got half of them in, in his pocket. Who knows? So basically what you're seeing is Harley trying to not die throughout this whole movie. But then you've got this diamond that has the Bertinelli fortune encoded into it with all these account numbers because the whole Bertinelli family was murdered. And Cassandra Kane ends up swiping that from Victor Zaz. And then part of the movie becomes trying to either get the information from Cassandra or protect her, depending on what Harley's mood is at the time. Now, we get to see Harley teeter between good and bad person here. And I think it's important to point out, and this movie does that, is that Harley Quinn is still a villain. That is one theme that was very much present throughout this movie. You know, while Harley is funny, and she's fun, and she's off the wall, and she does crazy stuff like to keep hyenas as pets and she's cool in the roller derby, she's still a villain. I don't care if she used a beanbag rifle when she busted into the GCPD. She's still a villain. And she was that way up until, well, even the end of the movie, she ends up being a villain, right? Because she kind of screws them all over at the end and takes Cassandra with her. So, I mean, she's still a villain at the end of the day. And that's something that this movie does not let you forget, even though... Some people seem to forget that. Some fans seem to forget that she's still a villain. Now, does that mean you shouldn't root for her? Maybe, you know, she's still killing people and maiming them and stuff. That's not not always the best thing. But you could make the same argument for Huntress. You could almost make the same argument for Black Canary. Not not as much as anybody else in this movie, but, you know, certainly Huntress more than Black Canary. But, you know, DC has made their villains people that you are rooting for whether you should be or shouldn't be and that's either a testament to how they're doing things or or something that's totally messed up I can't really make up my mind but Harley is still a villain and that is something that is in the forefront they don't shy away from that you might not see it maybe you don't want to see it but they don't shy away from that in this movie that she is still a villain now she is protecting Cassandra but it's not for the best reasons in the world She's trying to save her own skin at the end of the day throughout this entire movie, keep in mind. Now, that doesn't mean she's not keeping the kids safe, but it's not an altruistic act either. That's the other thing that you need to realize. Now, and again, I don't want to go too deep into this in this entire plot thing here. This is very much a Harley Quinn movie, too. Let's just get that out there right now. This is a Harley Quinn movie. It should have been marketed as a Harley Quinn movie that also had the Birds of Prey in it. If that's the mistake that was made and why the dollars aren't rolling in the way it should be, then 
you can you can point to that if you like. That doesn't mean that the birds of prey don't play a role in this and that they don't have their moments to shine because they certainly do. And we get to see more of the Brendan Fletcher Black Canary and and Dinah Lance. We get to see more of that in here with the, with the run that she had when she was a musician, but with a little bit more of a tortured present than the tortured past. Now, certainly she, she, they kind of touch on her backstory a little bit and find out, you know, her upbringing wasn't the best, but her present isn't great either because she's basically Roman's lounge singer that ends up being his driver. And she ends up being scared to death. Most of the movie, mostly because she's kind of denying who she is. And one of the things, one of the people that pushes her to realize that both figuratively, figuratively and literally is Renee Montoya. And Renee Montoya, Rosie Perez, that was one question mark I had going into this, was how is Rosie Perez going to be as Renee Montoya? And she had edge, but she was also funny when she needed to be funny because you know Rosie Perez can be funny. But she had that edge to her. But she also had that ability to sort of lift people up when they needed. She had these leadership qualities, but she was also a bit bitter because, quite frankly, she'd been screwed over so much that... You know, how could she not be in her career? And then she ends up saying, screw it at the end and just kind of leaves to be with the birds of prey. So I thought that she did a great job. And if it wasn't for her, who knows what would have happened with Black Canary in this movie. And we only get to see the Canary cry once in this movie, by the way, which I think was really smart. And they saved it, too. They, the, the way that this character was being written and the lack of confidence that she had overall seeing her do that towards the end of the movie and basically save them because if she doesn't do that, they're all dead. Okay, so Black Canary saves the day in this movie, period. Okay, she definitely saves the day. I think that that's something that needs to be pointed out that's not being pointed out enough. So I actually thought Rosie Perez played a key role in this. Then you've got the key role played by Black Canary. And then you've got Huntress, who's basically the reason all of this is happening is because of the Bertinelli's, and that's her connection. Then she comes back to right the wrongs of her family, and she kind of she doesn't get involved in this more so that she gets stuck in this because she goes to kill Victor's ass because Victor's ass was involved in the killing of her entire family. So she was, you know, like Oliver Queen in season one of Arrow. She had her little list, and she was checking names off of it, literally. So... Zaz was the last one. Zaz was already dead when she got there, but when she tried to leave, they were already surrounded, so she was stuck. So she gets stuck in this at the end. If anything, if there's a character we didn't see enough of in this movie, it was definitely Huntress. Could have seen more Huntress, but like when she's practicing her little her little catchphrase in the mirror, her little line that she says to everybody, her Indigo Montoya moment, if you will. There's a little Easter egg for you, kids. Go ahead and Google that. As she's practicing in the mirror and it, it's not coming out right and she and she, she thinks she sounds ridiculous sort of thing. There was humor there as well. This movie found moments of humor that weren't forced and made their way into the movie naturally. And I think that I could have seen a lot more of Huntress and hopefully we will see a lot more of Huntress in the future because I think that she did... That, she was a great part of this movie and not to mention one of the some of the best action parts in this movie outside of Harley were from Huntress she is a badass times 10 so if we can get more of her in future DC movies whether it be a Birds of Prey movie or something else yeah let me get more Helena Bertinelli let me get more Huntress in another movie plus I do like the the comics accurate costume that they had for her 
at the end of the movie too, by the way. Very, very cool. I love that they decided to throw that in there. But the only one that was kind of out of character really was Cassandra Kane. But if you put Cassandra, if you take Cassandra Kane out of her, you know, normal roles in Batman comics and stuff like that, and the Cassandra Kane that you know from those comics, and stick her in a Jimmy Palmiotti, Amanda Connor world, which this movie was very much based off of the the Jimmy Palmiotti, Amanda Connor runs from Harley. That's basically what this movie felt like to me was reading that that Harley run from them that was the vibe of this movie if you take Cassandra Kane and put her into that context and think what would they do with this character and you could see that from the Harley Quinn and Birds of Prey comic that they put out recently as well from DC this is their version of Cassandra Kane just because it doesn't fit your version that you know of of Cassandra Kane doesn't mean that it's incorrect. So if there was any character that deviated more so from their persona that you know than any others, it is Cassandra Kane, and you're either going to be okay with that or you're not going to be okay with that. But the dynamic between her and Harley, the way that that built, I thought was really, really interesting, and that wasn't forced either because, you know, they don't get along right away, and then they sort of start to bond over certain things over over a kind of a short period of time because they, they're kind of stuck together for a part of this movie. So it was just very, very interesting to see how that bond developed. And then the forced, again, the whole the way the whole Birds of Prey were kind of forced together and were sort of for, out of necessity had to bond. And Harley was the one that came up with that. And, and that's the other thing that this movie points out too is that Harley's not a complete idiot. She might be a goofball. She might do things that are that are totally crazy and that you wouldn't be out of character. Crazy and stupid are not the same. And that is one thing that you realize about Harley in this movie if you didn't already. Just because she's crazy doesn't mean she's stupid. She still has a PhD, which she also points out in this movie as well. She's smart. She's just nuts. There's a difference. So that that's something that is very, very clear. But these are very strong and capable women that are portrayed in this movie and you get to see how they can be pushed to the side. There is some misogyny in this and stuff like that, but it wasn't a main theme of the movie. It was more about them standing up than about them being held down. And that was the other thing that I really, really loved about this movie. Just the camaraderie of the group. Once they came together, once they got through what they got through was really, really amazing. Now, before I go too far on this, I do want to talk about, because I talked about Roman Sionis a bit earlier, Ewan McGregor. My God. This guy, you could almost argue that Ewan McGregor steals the show with his portrayal of Black Mask. Not only is he utterly evil, just... uh, Man, this guy doesn't play bad guys enough if this is how it's going to turn out. He was just... He... You could see him losing it mentally more and more as the movie progressed, as the story went on. And he wasn't an altogether there dude anyway, but you can sort of see him lose it more and more. And you could tell that his biggest beef is a lack of respect, is a lack of name recognition that somebody like the Joker has, and that's what he wants. He wants that rise to power, and he'll do anything he he can do to get it, and he thinks money will get him there. Not that he doesn't already have money, but he was shut out of his family fortune, right? So he kind of wanted to act like he was a self-made man, but nobody else saw him that way. He thought people were laughing at him 
And when he's making that woman dance on the table, too, by the way, was that not one of the most uncomfortable scenes in the entire movie other than Victor Zaz? And by the way, I was worried about Victor Zaz, and I know that everybody was worried about Victor Zaz when they saw the posters in the movie come out. You're like, oh, really? What kind of Victor Zaz are you going to get here? He was creepy. He was just pure evil. Some of the most graphic scenes in the movie involve Victor Zaz. If you were worried about Victor Zaz going in, you were not worried about Victor Zaz once this movie was over. Now, we didn't get to see the full extent of his evil, I don't think. But at the same time, we certainly saw enough to know, yeah, this is still Victor Zaz. This is not just some portrayal of Victor Zaz. This is capturing the character of Victor Zaz for sure. Now, as far as Black Mask goes, this was Ewan McGregor's Black Mask. He took this character and made it his own. Now, were there still elements of the, of the character from the comics? Sure. I actually loved when he finally did put the mask on. I thought that that was very comics accurate as well. But yes, there were definitely some elements of the character from the comic, but the way that Ewan McGregor was able to make this his own and let his performance just speak for itself, that says a ton. I thought this movie, yeah, at times was it all over the place? Sure. But none of the humor felt forced to me. That doesn't mean that I laughed throughout the entire movie either, but none of it felt forced. It felt natural. It felt very Harley. And the way that this story sort of connected at the end made sense. And the fact that the Birds of Prey weren't all together in the beginning of the movie made sense as well. Everybody walked their own path until they couldn't anymore because they thought that that's what they had to do. They thought they were all on solo missions until they decided that maybe they were stronger together, even if it was just in that moment. And then some of them found out, yeah, maybe teamwork is the way to go. So we have a Birds of Prey at the end of the movie, and we also have Harley and her new protege, Cassandra Kane. And where all of this goes from here, I don't know. How this leads into Suicide Squad, I can't say for sure. But it will be really, really interesting to find out as we move right along. So I am going to tell you, you definitely need to see Harley Quinn in the Birds of Prey or Birds of Prey in the Fantabulous Emancipation of Harley Quinn. Whatever your marquee says, go see this movie. There's definitely, now that you know what it's about, you should know what it's about. Go see this movie. You will not be disappointed. It's one of the most fun movies that DC has ever put out. And if you just like having a great time, you like seeing some great action sequences, hats off to the stunt team on this because, man, they did an awesome job. You want to see this movie. Do not wait. Do not let this one pass you by. Go see this movie. That's going to do it for my spoiler-filled review of the Birds of Prey movie. Up next, how about we talk a little bit of lock and key as well? We'll do a little bit of spoilers on that, but not a ton. Next, on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is writer and artist Gabriel Rodriguez, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. You never know what's going to open doors for you sometimes. How about a little bit of spoiler-ish talk about season one of Lock and Key from Netflix? Now, just in case you're not familiar with the Joe Hill Gabriel Rodriguez story from the comics and this adaptation, I'll go ahead and read you the synopsis just in case. Three siblings who move into their ancestral estate after their father's murder discover their new home's magical keys, which must be used in their stand against an evil creature who wants the keys and their powers. Now, the who in question here are the Locke family. Nina Locke, who is the mother. You've got Tyler Locke 
and Kinsey Locke, who are the older siblings, and then Bodie Locke, who is the younger sibling. Now, they, of course, they move to their ancestral home from Seattle to Massachusetts, so they're going all the way across the country to move to this house that nobody else in the family seems to want. And now the father basically, again, just a few spoilers here, so if you don't want any spoilers, go ahead and skip ahead. But the father was basically murdered because of some of what was going on in this house, and we do find out that it is these keys. Now, when I did my review of the first episode down in nerdypodcast.com, I was like, well, I really hope we spend more time in the house and not necessarily outside of the house because to me the fascinating part about this was the house. And then you find out, of course, it's more about the keys than about the house, and you start to kind of sh- I started to kind of shift that focus a little bit more because the keys are fascinating. Like you've got the key that allows you to go into your own mind and you see actually Tyler, you know, throw books into his into his mind and he automatically learn information like how convenient would that be right but you also got to see like when you see Kinsey change she takes her fear out she has a, she's a totally different character at that point what these keys can do is either fascinating or completely dangerous and that is one of the themes of this first season is are these keys amazing are they magic or are they a complete disaster and that's the reason why this why everybody in the family seems to hate this house but here's the thing none of the adults seem to remember anything they don't remember any of this magic as a matter of fact once the mother once nina gets locked in the, in that mirror world the first time she doesn't even remember anything after the fact which is really really interesting and but then of course you find out how it comes back in bits and pieces throughout as the season progresses and we get to see Bodhi is one of the central figures of this whole mystery for some reason and he's the one that discovers Dodge who is the evil creature in question who's living in the well house and she tricks him into giving one of the keys now one of the things you find out about this again a little bit of a spoiler is is that yes Dodge is evil and yes you you kind of hate her this entire season and the way she's passive aggressively evil at first and then becomes more aggressively evil as the season goes on is that they have to give her the keys she can't take them and that leads that's kind of what starts pushing dodge over the edge and makes her become more evil and the way she says Bodie was just so creepy and the way she says people's names it sends shivers up your spine that that's the kind of horror that I like, right? Not the jump scares, not the gore, and there's almost none of that in this in this season. It's that eeriness that Dodge brings and her just cunning, conniving evil, especially when you see what happens with her and Tyler later on in the season as well. That is a wild development, and there's just so many other things going on. And then you find out, you know, that she had influence even on the father all those years ago. Dodge is a fascinating villain in this first season, but you've also got the the one who shot their dad who plays a role in this season as well. And you find out, and they actually find out something the kids do about their father. Well, Tyler and Kinsey find out anyway. That That is kind of shocking in this season as well. And these are a few things that I don't want to give away to you. But what I'm saying is, is that at first I wasn't sure... 
that I didn't want to just focus more on the mystery and not on the family. But as I was going, the more and more I got invested and started thinking about how what was going on would affect the family. And I found that and I didn't binge this all the way through because, you know, I have two kids at home and, you know, you got to start and stop. And I didn't want to watch this in front of the kids. But as I wasn't watching it, I started, I was thinking of, I found myself thinking about not what keys they would find, but how this is all affecting the family and what's going on with this dynamic and the fact that, yeah, they're uprooting their entire lives to move to their ancestral home. And that's, you know, would have an effect on teenagers that have built lives where they were and, and have an effect on a younger sibling and the mother as well. So, and the family dynamic in general. So there's there's that aspect, and then you throw these keys in there and think you've got these kids who aren't necessarily, you know, they're still kids. They're going to do some irresponsible, stupid stuff. And when you have something as dangerous as magical keys and po- the potential for unlimited possibilities, there's stuff that could happen there. And there are to- plenty of times in this season where you're either going to be happy with Kinsey or you're not going to like Kinsey. You're either going to like Tyler or you're not going to like Tyler. There's a very up and down feeling about this. And there are rock bottom moments for a lot of these characters throughout this first season that are very, very interesting. But then you see how they sort of decide to come together as well. There's also some, you know, some romantic entanglements that are here for, for both for both um, Kinsey and Tyler that are that end up being interesting. It's one of those things like, ah, oh, really? You got to throw the kids into relationships. We got to focus on this, but then they actually become a an a, a somewhat of an important part of this whole thing, and and it also gives them something else to lose, right? And it and it shapes it's shaping their personality, and it's shaping how certain things are going to happen throughout this season. Not to mention, everybody in the small town knows the locks. Not only from when they were there before, not only because one of the, their house is one of the most famous houses because it's 200 years old, but because of what happened to their dad and that kind of tragedy in a small town. That grapevine is very small, so you can only imagine how they're treated just in general anyway, especially when stuff starts to go down again. And you've also got some of these other mysterious characters as well that you that you know that used to work. That, that work at Key House or that used to know Randall, who is the dad. There's just so many layers to this this show. There's so many layers to this first season. And then there's something that you find out about Nina Locke as well towards the end of the first season that changes the dynamic for her character and maybe how you feel about her. There's a lot of emotions that you can get when you're watching this series. And, and there's myst- there's great mystery the horror aspect is certainly there, but it's not pushed to the forefront. And it's just damn interesting. That's the that's one word I could use to describe lock and key is that it's interesting. And yes, it does do justice to the source material. And I've got to say, as far as performances goes, you want to talk about the acting aspect of this. I got to tell you, Amelia Jones is amazing as Kinsey. There's so much that she has to do in this first season that is so hugely important and she brings it. Darby Stanchfield is really good as the mom is Nina Locke. You also have, I got to give a shout out too to Patrice Jones who plays Scott in the show, who's not one of the main characters, but is a very important supporting character when it comes to Kinsey as well. But I got to tell you, Laisla Day Oliveria as Dodge, super creepy. 
I mean, just super, super creepy to the point where, you know, when the just the way she talks and the way she operates, it's like sends shivers up your spine at times. It is really, really crazy. And just the way that this whole thing is presented to us is is so... And also, I don't want to forget Connor Jessup, who does a really good job. But I got to tell you, Jackson Robert Scott as Bodie might be my favorite character. That That's one of those kids where you want your son to have that kind of spunk and, and, that's, and, and that kind of curiosity and that kind of energy. And that's the thing that you get from Bodhi. So I, and the whole Aloha thing, I won't spoil that for you, but it's a pretty funny moment. And I hope it's something that catches on. Hopefully you were already streaming and binge watching lock and key season one on Netflix. I hope this thing runs for a ton of seasons because there's a lot of lock and key comics, a lot of ways that this story can go. I really, really hope this thing can continue. That's going to do it for my spoiler-ish review of Lock and Key from Netflix Season 1. How about we tackle some nerd news next? I'm James Witham, and this is the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hey, this is voice actor Roger Craig Smith, and you guys are listening, you lucky people, to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. And we're back. Because sometimes the best things come to the nerds who wait. It is time for nerd news, and I mean late on Thursday, or at least later Than usual, the biggest news of the week dropped, and it was in the form of a video from Batman director Matt Reeves. Oh, yes. It was our first look, finally, at Robert Pattinson in the cape and cowl, thanks to some test footage. Now, I want to preface it by saying this. This is test footage, okay? So let's just go with that, right? Let's just get that out of the way right now. Test footage means they're testing Robert Pattinson in the suit, they're testing the look of the suit itself. Test footage isn't necessarily final air footage, okay? That's something that we need to consider here. And don't think that me saying that is a is a clue to how I feel about what I saw, because it's not. What I will say is this, is that it was very. It, I, I do get the Daredevil vibes. I saw that a lot on social media. That the it was very Daredevil esque the way they revealed it and the way that the video was presented. But that's neither here nor there. I I do get it though, especially with the similarity of the two characters. And you know, if there was an homage there, who would blame Matt Reeves? I mean, why wouldn't you do that? That was you know, I mean, that's something that people have been missing. Why not give them a little bit of vibes of that? But I got to tell you, first of all, we don't even see the whole thing. We don't see the whole cow. We don't see the whole cape, although there looks to be more cape, and that's that's good, I think. We need that, you know, bigger cape that we saw in the Michael Keaton era. I think that that is something that we've been missing from recent Batman adaptations. And, and you know, that's something that, that I definitely wanted to see. Now, the bat symbol looks to be really, really interesting. It's very, you know, tech, it's very tech-looking. It's very metallic it's definitely not your traditional bat symbol. It, it looks like it could be a little bit inspired from the Arkham games. It actually does look like it's made out of guns, which is, which is interesting. You know, the whole Batman doesn't use guns thing. And then it's made out of guns. That that could be interesting. I'm not saying that it is, and I'm not saying that it isn't. I'm just saying that that's kind of how it looks a little bit. So only time will tell how that actually pans out but the the suit does i mean the cowl looks very noir style and this was described by matt reeves as a noir crime noir style movie so you see like the the the, the cowl is clearly leather 
I mean, it's you've got the stitching that's on there. It's it's got not necessarily. I wouldn't say a year one vibe because I I know I saw that a lot too. I wouldn't necessarily say year one vibe, but definitely early years vibe because you know Batman's gonna upgrade his equipment and that includes his suit as time goes on. But if you're doing a very early version of Batman, of course he's not gonna have like the Mac Daddy suit all teched out right away. So I, I think that this was a very very interesting reveal. I didn't love it or hate it, actually. I think that I took it for what it was, and, and that's test footage. That's what it is. It's test footage. Now, will the suit look like this come Final Air version when we finally see the movie in 2021? Maybe, maybe not. Maybe they looked at this test footage, and you know what? And they said, you know what? Nailed it. We got it. This is what we're going to do. And if that's the case, that's fine, too, because I certainly liked what I saw. I'd like to see more before I can form a full opinion on it because I don't think that, you know, how can you form a full opinion of something if you haven't even seen the whole thing yet? And we've only, we've only seen a small part of it. Now, some important parts of it, but you don't even see the top of the cowl. And to me, that's a hugely important part of the bat suit. We don't really know that for sure. And are are we going to get the white eyes or are we going to get, you know, just regular eyes? It seems like we're going to get the regular eyes where you know you could you could see through like like we've gotten a million times before but we, we don't know for sure so we'll have to wait to see what the final air version is but so far so good I, I i definitely liked what i saw from it but you know again i wasn't blown away by it and i didn't hate it either so i think it's a good start that much i can definitely say for sure speaking of batman there's more batman news to talk about from dc comics actually First revealed by Entertainment Weekly, and that is that, hey, guess what? Batman the Animated Series is coming back. Kind of. It's coming back in comics. And it's Batman the Adventures Continue from DC Comics, which is going to be a digital first series, but then it is going to also go to print. It'll start digital first in April of 2020, and then it'll hit local comic book shops, the print issues, on May the 6th, 2020. Now... You want to talk about a good group involved with this. You've already got Paul Dini and Alan Burnett that are going to be writing this thing. Okay, and yes, they were involved in the original Batman the Animated Series. I doubt that I even needed to tell you that. Then you've also got variant covers by Dan Moore. You've got Dave Johnson doing the other colors. Ty Templeton on art there and colors by Monica Kubina. It's, I mean, the, the, the pages that I that were released in the press release certainly tell me that they understand how this thing needs to look. Because when you're basing anything on something as classic as Batman the Animated Series, you better get it right, and you better get the look right. And as a matter of fact, if you look at Dave Johnson's cover, while we see, you know, an ominous shadow of Batman at the top, if you look at the villains that are affixed on the buildings... The villains definitely have the look that they did in the animated series. You know, maybe, you know, different, a little bit different variations here and there. But then you look at the interior pages and you go, okay, they understand how this thing's supposed to look. And, and, and they definitely want to make sure that they do this right. Now, as far as what the story is going to be about in this first issue, I'll go ahead and just read this for you. In the first issue of Batman, the adventures continue Collected two digital chapters, Wayne Enterprises in Gotham City is attacked by a giant robot that steals an entire room from the laboratory. Who's controlling the robot? How will Batman stop the mechanized menace? And what 
does it have all have to do with Lex Luthor's sudden appearance in Gotham? So that's interesting. We're going to get Lex Luthor in a Batman in the Animated Series story. So, I mean, you, I mean, you're starting out big right away. And I know the fans have wanted a revival of Batman in the Animated Series. And maybe this isn't exactly what you, what you were looking for and what you thought you might get. But, I mean, you're bringing back the original, you know, some of the original participants in this. Okay? So, I mean... That, that alone should make you happy right there. And, I mean, maybe this does lead to something down the line. But, again, we have to be careful what we wish for, too, because would, we, would you want Batman the Animated Series to return without the original voice cast? I mean, there there's certainly, you know, that's an option. I'm sure that a lot of the original voice cast would come back. But, you know, something that's that timeless and that classic, I hesitate to mess with it. You know, that that's one thing that I'm like, ah, I don't know if we want to do that. Maybe that's something that we shouldn't do. But, I mean, hey, as far as comics are concerned, I'm in. I think that this could be something that could be very long-lasting. And, I mean, I know it's another Bat book, and maybe we don't need one of those, but this is different. It's Batman, the animated series. It's animated series. It's our exception to the rule, and I'm going to take it. Speaking of things that maybe shouldn't be done, apparently a Goonies kind of reboot could be coming to Fox TV. And I say kind of, and I'll tell you why, based on the Hollywood Reporter's story, which they broke the story. Now, I don't want to read the whole, you know, series, you know, synopsis for you here that they that they put out because it's like a full paragraph. And, you know, reading a couple sentences is one thing, but yeah, I'm not sure that we want to do this. But basically, it's about a woman named Stella who, you know, kind of ends up having to move back to her hometown to be a substitute teacher. So it starts out, you know, sounding like a Hallmark movie, kind of. And then she, you know, kind of gets an inspiration from some of her students who want to pursue a filmmaking career, so they want to do a shot-for-shot remake of the original Goonies. Now, and then it says something along the lines of, you know, over the course of the series... You know, the passion for the project kind of inspires the town and yada, 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 and storytelling and, and drama and dreams and stuff like that. And I'm like, okay, that's all well and good. But I don't know. Goonies is another one of those things where in any way, shape, or form, I'm not sure you mess with it. I'm not sure that this is something that you really want to tackle. I mean, episode one should be, yeah, this isn't a good idea. We shouldn't make this, and then that should be it, quite frankly. Because you should tell these kids that pick another movie, get original idea. We don't want to We don't want to do anything with Goonies. That is a timeless classic that should never, never, never be messed with, even if it is shot for shot. Now, this is similar to what Fox tried to do with the Beverly Hills 90210 reboot, when they brought back the original cast, it wasn't an actual, you know, continuation of the series. It was like a, you know, okay, so they want to make a reboot with the original cast, and it was almost like reality show meets scripted series. Not that most reality shows aren't scripted series, but that's not a slippery slope. We'll actually get down to, we'll actually go down right now. What I'm saying is, is that you know you're trying to play both sides here, and I'm not sure that you know. Especially for fans of the Goonies, is this something that's going to interest you as a Goonies fan? Or is this something that just happens to be a part of a show that Fox wants to try to do and the Goonies just happen to be a part of that? I mean, I know Goonies never say die, but I'm not sure that this is one that's going to see life at all. I mean, we'll see. But again, you know, it's hard to judge something when you haven't seen a trailer. You you know, the thing hasn't even been cast yet. So, I, I... I don't know. I'm just leery of it only because I'm not sure 
that that's something you don't want to mess with the Goonies. I mean, I, I just I just worry about that, and maybe it's not going to be as much about that as I think it is. But uh, I don't know. Again, still, this is not something that that I think is the best idea. Speaking of good ideas or bad ideas, we have a new publisher on the block, and it is bad idea, and it's from quite frankly quite a few people that used to be working for Valiant Entertainment that are going to be doing this thing as well. And before I get to that, let's get to what Bad Idea is all about. And this is, I got to tell you, if you're going to launch a publishing company and make this, you know, make it a big deal, this is how you do it. Basically, their mantra is don't do anything unless it's special. That is a direct quote. And there's going to be a limited number of issues, limited number of series, no more than two, one or two single issues per month. That's another thing that they're doing. Now, granted, they've got a lot of you know, big name creators on tap. On tap, Matt Kent is going to be doing their first series called ENIAC Number One with Doug Braithwaite. You'll remember that combo from Valiant. Jeff Lemire is going to be involved. Joshua Dysart, Eric Heiser, and more. There's there's going to be some top notch creators involved in this. So this isn't just some startup type deal. They've they've already gotten some big names that are going to be attached to this thing. And here's the other thing too: there's going to be no variants. There will be no digital releases for these books. And there will be no trade paperbacks, hardcovers, or anything else from that matter. It's only monthly comics sold by a select number, by the way, of comic book stores. Not every comic book shop is going to be able to get these things. And that therein is there's going to be 20 shops that are going to carry these. And this is all going to start in May of 2020. As a matter of fact, May 6th of 2020 is when ENIAC number one from Matt Kenton, Doug Braithwaite is going to hit the shelves. Now... Just based on that alone, let's just talk about that for a second. I, I got to tell you, and, and you call yourselves bad idea. You could look at this concept and say, this is a bad idea. Why would you limit yourself? Why would you do this? Why would you do that? Here's my take on it. Why would you start massive and try and go everywhere? This not only helps you sort of ease into things, right? This helps you. You're a brand new publisher, regardless of how much experience is involved here with, with guys like Warren Simons and, and Hunter Gorenson, who are, who are vets of the, of the Valiant world. And I'll get to some of the other names here in a second. But why would you jump in with both feet with a whole bunch of different titles being released at the same time? There are publishers that have tried that, and maybe it worked out for them early on, and you know things have fizzled out a little, a little bit. I'm not going to name names here. But... This is a way to kind of ease into things, but but also you're making a splash. You're making a name for yourself right away, and you're making your books collector's items from the jump. From your very first issues, you're making them collector's items because they're going to be hard to get. Not everybody's going to have a chance to get their hands on these things now, and this also makes them, if Bad Idea does the convention circuit and decides to sell their issues at their booths, it makes them a must-go-to booth for anybody who's not in these participating areas for these 20 shops that are going to be able to get these books in the first place. Think about that for a second. And this ENIAC story is basically a World War II era type, is a World War II centric type story, but you know, and then you fast forward 75 years later and there's potentially a nuclear holocaust that could destroy everything that's a you want the full synopsis go to down and nerdy because it's literally like a page 
That's how long the synopsis is. I've never seen a longer synopsis for a comic ever. Not a criticism at all, by the way. Not a criticism. I actually think that that's very, very cool that they, do, that they went ahead and decided to do that. But again, this is something where you can ease your way into this whole, you, you know, you're a brand new publisher, you can kind of ease your way in, see how things go. Now, does that mean that they'll eventually collect and trade paperbacks? No. Does it mean they're going to have more books if they become hugely successful? No. This could just be what they decide to do the entire time. But what it allows them to do is dip their toe in the market and see, you know, how warm the water is before they can start making decisions on any kind of expansion or any or any changes. Either this works out fantastically and they have to do nothing because it's working for them, or they decide later on down the line, you know, maybe we should add this, maybe we should add that. But there's very, very smart people that are behind this. And as a matter of fact, Dinesh Samdasni is one of those people. And Dinesh, I've butchered your names a thousand times, make it a thousand and one. I apologize for that. You've also got Warren Simons, who used to be, you know, one of the big wigs over at Valiant as well. He's going to be co-CEO with Dinesh and, cre- and chief creative officer as well, along with him. And then Hunter Gordonson's going to be the publisher, director of marketing, Joshua Johns, and sales consultant, Adam Freeman. There's a This is a team... It has a lot of experience in the world of comics. And the, when they were with Valiant, Valiant had a lot of amazing books out at the time. They do now as well. But I'm just saying, Valiant was doing very, very well under this leadership from a storytelling standpoint. That should give you very good vibes as to what we could be seeing from Bad Idea starting this May. Quite frankly, I think that this is... I can't say good idea or bad idea yet because I don't know how it's going to work. What I will say is not only is it intriguing, it is a great way to get people talking about something that you're doing before it even happens. So right there tells me that they have a very, very smart marketing plan, and I really, really hope that it pays off for them. That's going to do it for Nerd News. Up next, going to be talking about Batwoman before this weekend's big episode with Luke Fox himself. Cameron Johnson joins me next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is Christine Adams from Black Lightning, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. So in case you're not already, you should be watching Batwoman every Sunday night at 8 o'clock on the CW. One of the big reasons for that is this guy right here. He plays Luke Fox on the show. It's Cameris Johnson. Cameris, what is up? What's going on, man? Thanks for having me. I got to tell you, Cameris, I'm still a little stressed out. After the last episode, how you guys just kind of ended it there and told us, oh, one Beth can survive and that's all. So <laughs> what was the intensity and excitement for you all like leading up to shooting this 12th episode? I mean, first of all, whenever I realized that there was a Beth, uh, this, with the, the whole crisis of the Earth, also in the universe thing, I was wondering what our Batwoman take on it was going to be. Because every show I had a different take on how we were going to be affected by the crisis. So I love that our, our effect was that one of our main issues in the show was Kate struggle with her sister, Alice. Uh, and the fact that we're bringing, now she's got <laughs> two different sisters at the same time, one good and one bad. I was very excited to see how Rachel was going to play that and how the writing was going to continue for this episode. So wait till you get to episode 12 and how it all, oh man, it starts getting crazy and a lot darker. Uh, but yeah, I was so excited to see that we get to play with two different bets. I think it's really, really, really genius. Now, it also looks like that Luke and Mary are actually going to be working a little more closely in this episode, trying to figure out, you know, what's going on with the headaches and everything. So talk about the chemistry between the two of them a little bit. I love Luke and Mary so much, man. I mean, I think 
they're in a way such polar opposites because Luke is so stiff and Mary is so uh, energetic. Sort of franticness kind of relates to and mirrors a lot of uh, <laughs> Mary's franticness. They're still not super similar. Um, but I think that's why they get along in a very fun way because they're sort of like a yin and yang. And I really think that we're starting to give a lot more hints into Mary possibly joining the bat team one day because she's getting closer and closer to helping Kay and Luke um, in their, 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 their problems. And when you get so close like Mary is right now, I mean, how much longer can it be until mm-hmm. she realizes uh, what's under the surface, you know? Absolutely. Now, a couple of years ago, I got a chance to talk to Chris Chalk, who, of course, played Lucius Fox on Gotham. Yeah. And he described Lucius as, and I quote, the smartest man in the room. Now, we haven't gotten to explore Luke's relationship with his dad too much, but do you feel like he's kind of feeling pressure to live up to his father's legacy? 1,000%. I think Luke sees Lucius Fox as one of the smartest men to ever live. And Luke Luke knows that he's a smart guy. Luke knows that he got into MIT, but Luke also does not believe that he is anywhere close to Lucius Fox. Uh, Lucius Fox was the epitome of genius and the epitome of good. And for Luke to be his son with a similar name and now the same job, for people to, to look at him like he's the new Lucius Fox is a lot of pressure for him because he doesn't think that he can be that. He wants to obviously be that, but he doesn't think that he, that he ever can be. Um, and he's just simply not as, I guess you could say, good. Not in the sense of morality, but not as good at doing all the things that Lucius did, like keeping this, the city safe, keeping Bruce Wayne secret, a, a, a secret, uh, as you saw in the pilot. <laughs> um, so I think Luke knows that... Luke knows that he's often one of the smartest men in the room, but I'm not sure if he always believes that he is the smartest one uh, around. So do you feel like we're kind of barely scratching the surface of what Luke's actually capable of? Oh, 1,000%. Because I think a lot of Luke's personality is that he suppresses things. He pushes everything down. As you saw, he didn't even bring up um, exactly what happened to his father until like episode five or six. Right, right. So he's not one to really open up to people. Even Kate, who is right now his only friend. You see Mary is slowly becoming his only other friend, and now Beth has become his third friend. Um, but he's not one to really show uh, who he is, where he's come from, what he's feeling, and what he wants. And I think as the show continues, I know that as the show continues, he'll start to open up more and we'll start to see what's going on on the inside. Do you think that's kind of one of the things that helps the bond grow between Luke and Kate, actually? You know, the fact that they both have these perceived standards to live up to, or is it kind of not, not that simple? I think so. I mean, I think it's a lot of things, though. I think, you know, they're both very reserved people. They both don't have a ton of friends, and they both need one another, and they both want to save the city. And there's all these similar wants and these similar feelings that kind of feels like they're brother and sister. They're, they're, they're not so much polar opposites like Luke and Mary. They're more like one another than they give themselves credit for. Um, and I think they often see that. Like, they often argue. Like, they often butt heads. So then whenever someone is right in the situation, they're like, oh, I didn't think about it like that. And they're, they're past it. <laughs> you know, like they're, their arguments don't ever take, take it too far. Um, so th- there's a lot of that happening. There's also a lot of loss there, how Luke lost his father, how Kate lost her mother. Um, there's so many similarities between the two of them. I think that's what keeps the bond so strong. Definitely. Now, you mentioned Crisis. I want to go back to that just for a second because... That's what, you know, kind of gave us Earth Prime here. Now, Luke didn't directly participate in Crisis, but, you know, knows what's going on and that everyone mm-hmm. lives on the same Earth now. So, of all the characters, who would you like to see him work with the most at some point? Oh, man. I want him to work with, um, oh, man, I'm, I'm blanking. Carlos Valdez. Uh, yes! Yes! <laughs> yes. 
What's his name? Why am I, why am I blanking on his name right now? Um, Cisco, Cisco, you got it. You got it. I want, yes. I you want got the Luke actor's name right. That's, so that's all. We knew what you were talking about. That's all about it. <laughs> I think if Luke Fox and Cisco got together, I think it would be hilarious because there, there would definitely be a c- competition of the mind. And I think that Cisco was so much more loose than Luke. And <laughs> Luke is so stiff. I think that not only would Luke think that everything that he's saying makes more sense than Cisco, but I think also Cisco's comedy would just get on Luke's nerves. <laughs> and I think Luke needing Cisco's help would be very funny and vice versa. I would love for them to partner up with something. That'd be so fun. That would be awesome. We're talking to Cameron Johnson, who plays Luke Fox on Batwoman, which, again, you can watch every Sunday night at 8 o'clock on The CW. Now, Cameron, speaking of other characters, we found out recently, just this week, actually, that Kayla Yule will be playing Nocturna, on the show coming up now mm-hmm. while this what you know we've had this story with alice and mouse then that's been amazing but how cool is it they kind of start exploring some of the other villains in the batwoman story now as well it's amazing i mean i think one of the best things about these cwdc shows is that we all have the big bad you know we all have this, this huge bad guy that's always overlooking all the bad in the shows but we also have chances to have that villain of the week every now and then to introduce a lot of these amazing really cool dc characters not trying to be one of them I think Nocturna makes for a very fun episode, and although she is the main villain in that episode, of course Alice has something to say about it. Of course sure. Alice makes an appearance, and of course Alice causes trouble that she always does. Um, so I, I love that. I love that we have a chance to have our big bad introduce other little baddies, and not only do we have two different problems, but we have this other third problem where our main villain and our new villain sometimes either are going to butt heads because one's getting out of his way, or they team up. And it's, it, it's, as always, different per episode. It's, it's been a lot of fun to figure out um, how the problems just continue to grow through each episode. Now, you mentioned the amazing writers that work on the show. And i got to tell you, I, I feel like I'm in awe of them every week because they just seem to bring it week after week after oh, week. Oh, man. What has it been like to work with in, everyone behind the scenes it. and really develop things? It's been amazing, man. Our writers are amazing and it's, I, every time I'm in Los Angeles I, I go to visit the writers room um, and every chance that I get because they're, they're so smart and they're so funny and they're so cool and they're so good at what they do I think my main thing about them that I love is that they listen like if I said like oh man you know I, early in the episode like episode 7 or 8 I was like man I'm in the Batcave a lot and although I love working in the Batcave all the time I can't wait for Luke to get out there. Mm-hmm. And he suddenly starts getting out there a little bit. You know, <laughs> Like he suddenly starts breaking his way out of the Batcave little bit by little bit. And I think at one point, Megan said that she was like, man, she's like, oh, I love this, uh, this, this curl with outfit. But she was like, I can't wait until Sophie is wearing more stippies. And I think eventually Meg, like, uh, Sophie gets to start wearing um, normal clothes. So it's, it's right. really cool that like, they hear it. And they're, like, they're not just like, you know, they care about what we, what we think and what, what we say and what we enjoy. So they're often asking, like, hey, what, what more do you want from Luke? Where do you see Luke going? Um, what do you want Luke to, to, like, how do you want Luke to end the season? Like, what are you thinking? And so take some of our ideas and, like, they'll make the best of those ideas as much as they can because they have a very beautiful story that they have to stay uh, close to, and they don't want to divvy away from that. Um, but they've been very good at taking a lot of our concerns and our wants and implementing them into the storylines, which has been so awesome. Absolutely. Now, one message that the show's been really con- being really constant about, even more so lately, is to spread love, not hate. Now, you actually even took to social media yourself recently with a video talking about, you know, spreading more positive vibes. How do you think the show has dealt with right. the negativity of the world in general and bringing certain issue- issues to light, but in a positive way? Oh, that's a very beautiful question. Wow. Um, I think it's, it's done a very good job of that, especially with that episode 
with uh, Kate's coming out, um, how Kate Kane had to do with that restaurant owner um, that wanted, didn't want her in the room because she was gay. Um, what, that's a very negative thing and a very negative situation that we that Tara Laundry, the showrunner, and our writers sort of turned on its head and said, okay, you didn't accept me, but I'm going to uh, I'm going to show the world who I am, and I'm going to be loved for that because that's how people should react to other people and how they want to be and how they want to feel. They, they should be uh, received with love, and although you did not do that for me, I'm going to show you that everyone else will because that's how the world should be. That's how the world is. Yeah, I, I, I think that we've been very good at taking some negative storylines, negative characters, and bringing out the joy and the good things out of them, especially in a dark city and a dark story like Gotham, where everything is sad. <laughs> uh, we've been able to bring a lot of the light out of that. Absolutely. Now, Cameras, before I let you go, you talked about getting out of the Batcave. I got to ask the question, ever since Luke Fox was added to this cast, hardcore comic book fans like myself have been wondering whether or not we'll see oh, yeah, Batman at some point. <laughs> so, now, I'll, let's put it this way. Do you think about that, and or does that kind of seem pretty far off at this point? I think it seems pretty far off, but at the same time, it, it seems like it's around the corner. So it, it's hard to say. Um, Batwing is such a, an amazing, pivotal character um, to the DC Universe, especially the new DC Universe. And Luke Fox becoming Batwing is one huge reason that I wanted this part, and I knew that I had to get this part, is because I want to play that character so bad. But the thing about Batwing is Luke Fox is an amazing character. He is a strong, genius, uh, young black man that is like how Static Shock used to do for me when I was a kid, teach young black kids that it's okay to be a young black nerd. Uh, that's okay. You shouldn't be ashamed to be a young black nerd. Um, so I think Luke Fox is giving that to people right now. And Batwing, although he's an amazing hero and persona, Batwing and Luke Fox, although they are the same, they're sort of two different people. Uh, whenever Luke Fox puts on the suit, he is Batwing. Whenever the suit is off, he's Luke Fox. I think that we need to fall in love with Luke a little bit more, learn more about who Luke is, uncover all the layers to this onion that we can before the next layer requires the suit. And once we've acquired the suit, then that's a whole other chapter of Luke Fox's life. So I think we need to earn that and get to that point where we deserve that hero. Obviously, I want to play Batwing right now. Play, of course. I want to play yesterday, you know, more than anything. But I also know that um, I want to see as much Luke as I can before Batwing comes about. Because when Batwing comes, it's all about Batwing. And I want Luke Fox to get the sound that he deserves. Well, you can keep falling in love with Luke Fox every Sunday night at 8 o'clock Eastern Time. Make sure you're watching Batwoman. And then, by the way, watching it again, which you can do on the CW app. It's Cameras Johnson. Luke Fox, man, thank you so much for joining me this week. Thank you, brother. Great talking to you. You can just tell by listening to Cameras Johnson that not only is he having a blast playing Luke Fox and being a part of Batwoman, but, you know, just the great appreciation that he has for the writing on the show, and you've heard me talk about that in the past, about how the writing's been so solid week in and week out, especially if you've been joining me for my watch parties every Sunday on TV Co., you know that I've been talking about how great the Batwoman writing has been and how you know they, this show is a show that brings it every single week, and, and there's just so much intensity and so much great story to tell there, and it seems like we're always left wanting more at the end of every episode, and that's what I want. Not to mention, the action's been good, especially now that they've started to turn the lights on a little bit and we can see what's going on. It's just been a solid first season of Batwoman that certainly exceeded my expectations. 
I was hoping that it was going to be good going in before we saw the first episode. Have not been disappointed this season. So if you haven't started watching yet, make sure you start watching this Sunday, 8 o'clock Eastern time on the CW. You can also catch up on the CW app if you haven't already. Do not miss Batwoman on Sundays because if you are, that is one show that has slipped through your fingers that never should have because it is good stuff. That's going to do it for this week's edition of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Again, thank you so much to Cameron Johnson for joining me this week and all the folks at Warner Brothers for making that happen. You want more info on, you know, anything Arrowverse related or otherwise, go to downandnerdypodcast.com. You can find past shows and past interviews on there as well. Follow us on social media as well at downandnerdy757 on Twitter and Instagram and facebook.com slash downandnerdy. Remember, you never have to apologize for being a nerd, so let your fan flag fly. Be good to your fellow nerds.